As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I'm Alison Rudd and I'm joined in the studio by Rory Smith and Stuart Robson and Ollie Kay has pulled over en route to the England camp. Welcome, chaps. Hello. Hello, Alison. Hi, Ollie. Before we begin, a reminder that we sometimes do this in front of a live audience. The Game podcast is in Newcastle this Wednesday and then we'll be in Manchester on February the 6th. Tickets cost £5 if you're a Times Plus member and £7.50 otherwise and you can book ticket by calling calling 0871 I should also point out that this show was originally recorded in German, so any errors or controversy are the fault of translation. Later, we'll be discussing the merits and egos of Cristiano and Zlatan and the futures of Yol and Di Canio. But first, let's get our teeth into England's defeat at Wembley. It was Hodgson's third defeat in 23 games and it has served to turn optimism over England's chances next summer into pouting realism. So, Stuart, let's just dive in. What were the reasons for England's defeat? England were tactically inept. The way Chile played, they kept the ball at the back, their full-backs got high up the field, they overloaded midfield, and England found it very difficult to close them down. And from that moment on, England were always going to struggle. But every time they won the ball back in midfield, it, in the first half particularly, it looked as though they could break Chile down because the full-backs were so high and they were almost just playing with two at the back. So there was a lot of things wrong. Also, he, he obviously played a semi-second-string side, Roy Hodgson, which you can understand. He wants to see some of the fringe players coming into the team and he wants to see whether they're going to be good enough just in case uh, some of the the, uh, senior players get injured or uh, lose form but overall I thought tactically that was the key area why Chile won the game So that makes it sound Ollie like there was a degree of inevitability to us not performing terribly well at Wembley. Well I I always think that England have two very distinct ways of playing. People often say England don't have a distinct identity. I I think they've got a schizophrenic approach really. Sometimes they have games where they look very, very tight defensively and, and pretty uninspired and inept going forward. And then they, they have these games where they sort of gung ho and they just look like they can concede every time the opposition gets the ball. Not only two minutes not only every time the opposition crosses the halfway line, but every time the opposition receives the ball in their own half, England looked vulnerable and it was one of those games where where England looked just so vulnerable to the counter-attack for all the reasons that Stuart mentioned and they just never seem to have the balance right. Rory, what about the theory that we're just simply unpractised against South American teams? A more significant issue is that this sounds like a roundabout way of going about things, but I remember when, when Widden won at Arsenal in... Ooh, this is a big roundabout. The last season they stayed up, not the season they went down, but the season before, whatever season that was. Martinez played a 3-4-3, and Arsenal, who were obviously a much better side than Wigan, looked completely baffled for the first half an hour about what to do about it. They obviously couldn't tell where they were meant to be. They'd clearly not been told how to counteract that system. And watching England-Chile, and Chile play a very strange, very modern kind of variation on the sort of 3-3-1-3 or whatever it is, where they do often only have two at the back. England looked, to me, a little bit confused about how you play against that sort of system. So I think it's not South American teams per se, because I think football generally has become much more globalised and much more kind of 
best practice, I guess, good ideas kind of germinated around much more quickly than they ever used to be. But I think England haven't faced a great deal of variety in opposition in the sort of style of play. And that might be one of their shortcomings. But there's no question that the South American teams are the big threats next summer no question about that but Jack Wilshire I'm not saying that what he says is necessarily well, just the, the dark reason. arts thing yeah I mean he did make even if you think oh well, that's a bit naff cute tackles we've got to learn to maybe be a bit more cynical the implication is that England were surprised by a South American ideology well then maybe they should watch more football from abroad mm. <laughs> I mean I mean, the problem was England decided not to press too high up the field and it allowed the Chilean back players to have lots of the ball and when you've got time on the ball it allows your midfield players and your wide players to rotate their position and that's when England had a problem. Do they go infield with the player they were marking? Do they stay in their space? And they made their decisions too late or they made the wrong decisions. So it always ended up with a Chilean player being spare in midfield. So when England pressed it after it went into midfield, they were played around and suddenly they were at England's back four. If they came too narrow to try and stay in the same sort of numbers as Chilean midfield, they switched it out to their fullbacks who were getting high and wide down both sides of the field. It was a real education in how to keep the ball and how to rotate your positions from Chile. It was outstanding from them. On, on that note, on South American teams cheat, so we've got to England, in, and England are these sort of beautiful mm. white knights in shining armour. It's not the 1950s. To suggest that is to suggest that there's kind of there's no players in the Premier League who ever commit a cynical tackle or a tactical foul or anything like that. It's complete nonsense, and it's slightly racist. I, I know what you mean, but there are undoubtedly occasions where an opponent will, uh, a team will burst across the halfway line, and, and English players will sort of do the thing of putting their hands up in the air to show that they're not bringing somebody down, and, and they won't bring them down. It's uh, Ollie, did you see? the Poland game twice in the Poland game and Frank Lampard had only been on two minutes and they were about to counter-attack Poland and they were going to create a good opportunity and Frank Lampard just brought down their player I think it might have been uh, Lewandowski and it was a cynical foul he got booked for it England players do it just as much as anybody else I know they do I know they do and I was going to mention those examples but in the first half of that game England weren't doing it and Poland were counter-attacking all the time and I I, I think occasionally there will be times where, where, where you think well Somebody needs to commit a clever foul there. And, that, and that's what Chad Walsh is saying. That does not come naturally to England and English players. And when you say Lampard did it against Poland, yes, he did. But it's quite a rare thing, I would say, for um, some English players to do that. You're all saying the same thing in a sense, which was there was almost a complete lack of preparedness for this game. What was the point of it, Ollie? Well, apart from generating money for the FA. In, in, uh, apart no, from um, that, Ollie, apart from well, that. Well, look, 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 there are, you know, what was it, seven months to the World Cup, six months to the squad is named, and, and this is one of only three games England will play. And these preparation games, they are important in, in terms of giving managers an opportunity to try things out. But I don't think any of the experiments were terribly successful. I think it's um, thrown up a few more players or a few more options that don't seem appealing rather than a few more options that do seem appealing. I'd, I'd also say that, to be fair, we, we criticise England and we criticise the FA and all that. The other thing that is positive is that they didn't choose to play. I mean, the Germany friendly on Tuesday is kind of the more traditional type of England friendly, which is clearly a, a monetary thing. They they want, yeah, they they want to play. And celebratory, top. it's the one fifty. <sighs> yeah, I mean, we're just there's so many anniversaries nowadays. It's ridiculous, but they clearly want to play a top level side. That's important. Neither of them will put out a full strength team. The Germans certainly won't. But that's kind of what England do with their friendlies. They they kind of want these showpiece exhibition games. Chile, I think that was quite an intelligent sort of opposition to pick. To be yeah. perfectly honest, I think that, that there will have been lessons learned from that game that maybe needed to be learned. Are there lessons to be learned, Stuart? Because you either come away from that game thinking, well we were unprepared for Chile or it didn't really count because of the fact that there were so many changes made to the team. I mean, can you lose a game badly like that with changes and come away and think, I'm glad I experimented, I learned from the players I haven't 
seen too much of. I think Hodgson will be disappointed with the way England played. He'll probably be disappointed with himself. I was watching him on the side of the field and you could see he was trying to work out how he could stop Chile having so much of the ball because it, Ollie said it was a ca- they, they counter-attack really well. Chile dominated the play. They had more of the ball than England. It was England that were trying to counter-attack and he wasn't quite sure. He kept on saying to the players, squeeze up, push in and I think he'll look back at the video. How could he have done better you know, and given better advice from the side of the field to stop Chile dominating the game and how could he have made sure they weren't outnumbered in midfield how could he have stopped their main player getting on the ball and keep running at us because every time they did they looked threatening so I think Roy Hodgson will look at it and say I learn a lot myself by the game and the way that Chile played and then looking back at the video and how would I approach that game again if it came around there are lots of individual dilemmas facing Roy in not so very far away the Joe Hart issue people say oh if he's not playing regularly for City how can he possibly go to Brazil I doubt that matters so much as long as he's training and getting reserve games and that the England manager likes him is mm. that naive of me what do you think I think at the moment there's not an issue because Forster I mean Forster didn't really do anything wrong against Chile particularly but he didn't exactly kind of advance his cause we think Hart will play against Germany so it looks like Hodgson at the moment is saying Joe Hart's still my number one he's I guess buying into this theory that Joe Hart's kind of mission from the City team is temporary, not permanent. But having said that, I mean, if you look at what six months down the line, if Hart's not played or only played in the FA Cup or something, he will be rusty. There's no question about that. That's not ideal preparation. And there won't be a huge amount of nations going to the World Cup who who have a goalkeeper that isn't first choice. Although I suppose, having said that, at the risk of becoming stream of consciousness, if Echecias <laughs> and Julio Cesar are both in the same position where they're not playing regularly. So it, it's not ideal. Hart will still go to Brazil, but whether he goes to Brazil as first choice, but I think, he'd depends go. on whether he, he plays. would go to Brazil without any mistakes, without having made any recent errors, because he won't have had the cameras yes, on him. Yes, That's he, quite good. he would go with a, a flawless yeah. recent record. He wouldn't have conceded a goal for nine months. He'd be basically <laughs> invincible. Ollie, your, your report, there were lots of bigging up of the Southampton duo who made their debuts. You weren't one of them, though, Ollie. I thought Lallana showed some quality, but I didn't think he had a particularly good game. I don't think he particularly influenced the game in a good way. And I think he's a good player, but I must say, I hadn't until last week been thinking, going, England must be getting a look at him in the, in, in the lead-up to um, the World Cup. And, and I certainly haven't been thinking that about Rodriguez. I mean, when you watch Southampton, there are various players who catch the eye, Shaw and Schneiderlin and Lambert and, and Lallana. But Rodriguez is not one who I had previously been thinking... Um, England must get him in the squad. So rather rather than write him off on the um, basis of 50 minutes or whatever it is, I, I think it, I would say that those 50 minutes probably confirmed a previous view of wasn't quite up to that standard, which isn't even a particularly high standard for England are concerned. Stuart, do you think? I absolutely agree. I think Lalana, uh, I've seen him many, many times. I saw him as an under-17 player when he was in the same team as Dyer and, and Walcott. I saw him in a game where they won 5-3 against a, a young Aston Villa side and, and Agbonlahor was playing and a couple of other players that came through into Aston Villa's first thing. And Lalana then, for me, was the best player on the field. I think he's an intelligent footballer. He didn't have his best game, but it was very difficult for him. He had to do a lot of backtracking against their fullback who kept on getting high up the field because Glenn Johnson had to go in field. So he had to do a lot of that work and he did it quite intelligently. He got on the ball. He linked up quite well with Wayne Rooney on a couple of times down the right-hand side. So he had a, an OK game, and I think he's one that can be considered for future internationals. But like Ollie, I've been to see Southampton over the last two years, and Rodriguez, for me, is lucky to be in the Southampton team at times. <laughs> I would have played, I know he's not there now, but Ramirez, when I saw the two play last year, Ramirez had a better understanding. He could pass the ball better. Rodriguez is, is a runner, and he didn't show that because he was too nervous about the game, and he just passed it square and backwards and just got through that 50 minutes. So I don't think he'd 
be seen again in an England shirt. But Rory, isn't there a problem with the way we assess players coming into the England team is that we do judge them on just a few minutes, whereas it's very important for players that have potential, are relatively young and might end up being the missing jigsaw piece, that they're allowed to get used to the spotlight and the way England operate. We tend to judge very quickly, whereas, in fact, this is all part of assimilation and long-term planning, which we're always accused of not doing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree completely. I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding sometimes, I guess with all international teams, but we're more exposed to it with England, so that's the easiest example to use, whereby we think that an international team has to be the best 11 players that are currently playing or the most talented 11 individuals. That's not true. It may be that Rodriguez is just a runner, and I agree, I, I don't think he stands out for Southampton particularly, but there are plenty of international teams who are very good international teams who use players. The best example is maybe Giaccherini when he was at Juventus, who mm. wasn't a regular at Juventus, but was a key part of the Italian side in 2012, because he did something for that team, and that's something we maybe don't quite give enough kind of significance to, I think, in England. We assume that it has to be, he's on form, Andros Townsend's on form, so we have to play Andros Townsend. It doesn't always work like that. It could well be that a player who doesn't look like a spectacular individual brings something to the team and that's what I like about Lalana. I think he's a multiplier I think the way that he works doesn't always make him look great but it makes other players look better and I think we, there's not enough of those in England Now I think Hodgson has sort of intimated the Colby Baines problem might carry on until three seconds before the opening whistle Ollie, are you open minded as well or do you think Roy ought to make, make his mind up quicker? Personally, I, I think he will he will keep an open mind for as, for as long as he can because it's not an easy one. I would go with, with Ashley Cole, personally, and, and I would say that while acknowledging that Baines has played better in the Premier League for perhaps the last, never mind one or two seasons, but perhaps the last three or four seasons, I think Baines's consistency week in, week out for Everton is fantastic. But I never feel the same confidence watching England with Baines at left-back as I do with Cole. And we can say that Cole is perhaps not the force that he was, either offensively or defensively as, as a left-back. But I, I would feel much more confident in England's defence, which I don't think is the best, um, with Cole there. And, and perhaps I would look to experiment with Baines on the left-hand side of midfield. I, I, I can't work out why that hasn't really been looked at, because to me, it seems that they are England's two best left-sided players, and, and that might be a combination that works. So at least let's have a look at it. Stuart, do you think maybe we should just take the view that there'll be matches where Baines is the better option? and there'll be opposition where Cole's the best Well, the way England try and play, and it didn't really happen the other night because Rodriguez stayed wide, but usually the wide left player, whoever it may be, even when it was Gerrard playing there a little while ago when Ashley Cole was playing behind him, likes to come infield. And that's why I was surprised that Lallana didn't play on the left-hand side. So he started to drift infield to link up with Wayne Rooney and Leighton Baines became almost like a left wing-back because that's the way England have played for quite some while. They play with it with, when they've got the ball, almost with the back three, and the left-back gets high and wide down that left-hand side. Leighton Baines is, a, and I disagree with Ollie saying you could play Cole and Baines in front because it's much easier for a fullback to come onto the ball than actually be a wide left player. So when the ball comes, he's now got to take somebody on. Leighton Baines is good at running onto the ball into open space and then bending balls around or playing little one twos. The problem that Leighton Baines has, and at the moment Ashley Cole has the same problem, their recovery runs aren't as good as their runs going forward. And we saw Leighton Baines, when the ball came into the box, he's not good at the far post, whereas Ashley Cole, I think, would have thrown himself at that to win the header against Sanchez. Defensively, I think Ashley Cole's the better player. Going forward now, I think Leighton Baines is more effective. So I would still stick with Leighton Baines at the moment. I think all of this is right. 
<laughs> but would agree the rightest thing I think is Alison that, that this, that I don't think we necessarily need to have a sort of he is the first choice left back no. if he is fit he will play in every single game yeah against a, a weaker side against the fourth seed in the group game you're probably going to need the better attacking player so you play Leighton Baines against you know Brazil or Argentina or whoever the, or Colombia or whoever they get as the seed then it probably would be more sensible to go with a more solid defensive option and I think that is actually cool I would have say against Chile, Ashley Cole would have been the better player because he makes better defensive decisions. And Leighton Baines had to make big defensive decisions because he was brought infield at times. He's thinking, do I go in there? Do I have to stay where I am? And he didn't make decisions. He almost got caught in no man's land on two or three well, occasions. Well, hindsight, you're spot on. I, but I do feel with Baines that he has felt the weight of I'm not as good as Cole, I'm not as revered as Cole. Mm. And I, I feel when he plays for Everton... There's almost uh, an arrog- almost an arrogance to mm. the way he plays. He's completely confident in his ability. And when he plays for England, there's a sense that I, am I, I'm, I'm probably not quite the best Also, I think we have to give Chile credit. They obviously did their homework and they made sure that he couldn't get forward very far because Sanchez or whoever went out, as soon as they lost possession, one of the players went out there and said, well, you're not going to break forward because every time you, England lose the ball, we're going to keep breaking into the space you've just left. And Sanchez did that brilliantly. Yeah. Now, I want to bring up the under-21 squad only because I saw England under-21 play live for the first time in 13 years on Thursday night. And I found it rather fascinating, probably because I hadn't seen them for 13 years. And it looked fascinating. But it seems to me that to keep these young players happy, Gareth Southgate feels the need to keep dangling the carrot of, you never know, you might be a late addition to the England squad. Ollie, is that ludicrous? Is there anybody in the under-21 squad who could make that leap? Well, the bar probably isn't set that high in order to be um, a member of this England squad. You don't have to be world-class to break into England teams. So the carrot is there. You don't have to be brilliant. I think if you hit form at the right time, you will probably be in the senior squad. But I've got to say, I think England's problem in anything, well, one of England's problems is that they've been sort of fast-tracking these players ahead of time, really. I mean, Phil Jones, Jack Wilshire, Oxlade-Chamberlain, who were three of the sort of more celebrated English youngsters, They've been brought out of the under-21 team into the senior squad before they were really ready. And, I, and I'm, there seems to be this view in England that these players are, are above playing at under-21 level, above playing in under-21 tournaments. And I think the under-21 should be used as a sort of finishing school, really, but rather than some sort of springboard to the senior team. And, and I, I would not be rushing to put any of those in because, frankly, I think, um, I think they would be better off long-term staying in the under-21s. I agree entirely with that. That's one of the biggest problems in the way that the national teams are run is that we don't we see the under twenty ones as a means to an end. That is what creates this atmosphere where players pull out and clubs pull their players out of the twenty ones because they think, Oh, well, it's only the twenty ones. You shouldn't be looking at that at all. I can understand why Southgate is saying to his players, if you do well you might get a call up. That's fair enough, I think, from Southgate. But, but it's counterproductive because what you got on Thursday night were players playing for not the match they were in or even the tournament they were trying to qualify for. They were playing for Roy Hodgson's watching. If I do a step over, he might think I'm God's gift. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that is the problem. I can understand why Southgate's done it. I think you, it's probably be harsh to criticise Southgate for, for saying that, but that is a problem. But I, And I agree, as I say, I agree with Ollie. I think we, we looked at the 21s in the wrong way we see them as kind of it is it sort of if you do well here it's like an, it's like a shop window it shouldn't be that at all that's just a shop but history you know I mean? would say and, and I agree with you but history would say that in all these big tournaments 
England sometimes throw a surprise, don't they? They do. Look at Michael Owen going to 98, and he, he hadn't played for England up until a couple of months beforehand. But, I don't he, think. but him and Walcott had barely played for the 21. Walcott hadn't, had hardly played a game and got into the squad, which was a ridiculous decision. And Oxlade Chamberlain played when they went to into the last European Championships, having not played that many and times. And the for common Arsenal. denominator is speed, isn't it? Suddenly, mm. when a tournament looms, you think, oh my goodness, we need someone we need fast. A fa- we need someone fast. I tell you what, the one, the one thing about the 21s, I've seen a, a fair bit of the 21s last few months, is that the best players in the 21s are in areas in which England are already comparatively well stocked. Luke Shaw, I think, is good mm. enough to go, but we've got enough left backs. I, I, I really like Nathan Redmond. You could make a case for for someone like Zaha or Sterling if they get a decent run at club level. The only one who I think could make it is Berahino. Yeah, well, he's incredibly consistent. He scored six mm. goals in five games for the under 21s. I get your point, Ollie, but if you ha- if you were in the position where you had to pluck someone from the under 21 squad, who would you take? Well, I just don't see the need for it. But listen, I, I made this point in the paper last week. You know, we just talk about oh, who will be England's wild card? Now, if you go back to 1986, it was Peter Beardsley was a wild card, having played two seasons in the um, first division for Newcastle, having scored 35 goals as a sort of number 10, and a year away from being the most expensive player in England. Go back to 1990, it was David Platt who was who had just been voted Player of the Year in a very good Aston Villa team that challenged the title. You got in 1998, Michael Owen, who had just finished as um, joint top scorer in the Premier League, having scored 18 goals in his first season. Now we're talking about Berahino, who's scored a couple of goals in the Premier League for West Brom. We're talking about Ravel Morrison, who scored a, a you know, he's extremely talented, but he's achieved. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Nothing in the game. And, and it just depresses me that there's this clamor for, oh, let's have a wild card and let, let, let's have a, a new name in the team. Because the fact is that anyone who's even half ready is already in the squad. And, and, and I think most of the youngsters that are in the squad 
aren't really ready to do a job at the World Cup. The, the idea that we need more youngsters just to sort of jazz things up a bit is, is, is quite alarming. He's good, isn't he, Kay? He's good. <laughs> isn't he good? Isn't that a good point? It's a very, very good point. But I just have to say the words James Ward-Prowse. I'm not saying saying he's ready. And what I like about him is that he says, I'm not ready yet, but I will be. It'll be 18 months or so, and then I'll be ready. Ward-Prowse will be a better player, I think, than Cleverly in in the future. Undoubtedly. Johnny Howson. Let's not get silly, Rory. It's not silly. Let's keep it to James Ward-Prowse. But this is the problem, and credit to Hodgson. I mean, obviously, Howson's not 21, but credit to Hodgson for bringing in Lalana Rodriguez into the side against Chile I, you'd, you'd have thought you looked at that and you do wonder whether either of them will ever appear again Lalana might Rodriguez may not do which is ridiculous as you said earlier but there are other players in the Premier League who are doing well who seem to be completely overlooked who might not be the, the most talented individuals but international football is not about having the most talented individuals it's about having a system of play that's what Chile have Cello Diaz, the central midfielder for Chile, who, who is their metronome, who makes them tick, isn't the best player in the world. He's probably not the best Chilean central midfielder, but he plays as he does a certain job for them. That is what you need in international football. It's this stupidity of saying, we've got to have Lampard, we've got to have Gerard, we've got to have Cleverly, because they play for the biggest clubs and they're the best players. It's just absurd. It's completely counterproductive. Johnny Housen's not as good a footballer as any of them, but he, he keeps possession well. He plays with a nice tempo. He might be worth a look. Well, I want the last word. James Ward-Prowse. He's good, he's good. and he's a really nice lad as well, Ward-Prowse. Yeah, yeah. Really nice Ah, lad. that makes it all the better. It, it does, yeah. <laughs> and so we move to our debate. Who would we all prefer to see at the World Cup finals? Ronaldo or Ibrahimovic? Don't worry, folks, this is going to lead on to a, a wider debate about what would make a glorious World Cup, but I think they're a good starting point. Rory, who would you be bereft not seeing? Well, I can kind of see why this has become like a nice kind of hook to sell the Portugal-Sweden playoff on. But it's, <laughs> it's not like it's, it's a great tragedy if neither of them go. They've both been before. I think it's wrong, but it's something like they've both played at four major tournaments. It's not like George Best where, you know, he, he never got a chance to go and it's a great tragedy. I personally would probably prefer to see Ibrahimovic because he's, he's nearer the end of his career, so he probably won't get another chance, but that's because I'm a nice person. But I don't think it's a great disaster for either of them if, if one of them doesn't, or when one of them doesn't go. They've both played at World Cups. Ronaldo's been to a semi, hasn't he? Yeah. But you see, immediately you've brought it down to as if they're your cousins and you're talking about it on a personal level. Well, on what as other a, level? this feeling that they need it in some way. When they look back on their career to say they were one of the true greats, no, do either of them need it? It's not the 1950s anymore, no. Oh, Ollie, so what does, what does a player need to be able to call themselves one of the greats? Don't they need to appear in the latter stages of a World Cup and shine? Not really. I mean, maybe in order to convince people in 30 years' time, 40 years' time. Messi hasn't really illuminated a World Cup yet. Ronaldo did well in 2006. But really, I mean, we don't need Ronaldo or Messi or Ibrahimovic to have a, a great World Cup or even appear at a World Cup next summer in order to convince ourselves that they're great players, do we? You're absolutely right, Ollie. It's the individual success that makes somebody a great player. And and, uh, Rory just mentioned a player there, George Best, who has to be considered great, never went to a World Cup. And he's been considered great. So just because somebody wins a World Cup final or wins a a Champions League final, it doesn't mean to say they're a great player. They can still be great. And sometimes players can be even better if they play for a lesser club and still put in magnificent performances. You know, Mm. he wasn't a great player. Ian won't. (laughs) I mean, he wasn't a great player. 
player, but Trevor Brookin played for a West Ham side that was always down the bottom of the table. But week in, week out, he was their best player and made things happen. And he wasn't always on top of the game. So it's much easier for people playing at the top level, playing for Manchester United, playing for Arsenal, playing for Liverpool, playing for Man City, to perform well, rather than players playing at a lesser club and still playing well week in, week out. But there is a tension, isn't there? There's this idea that because when we were all younger and we're all different ages, but when we were all younger, all of us, the World Cup was the kind of apogee of world football and it was the World Cup that defined who would be legendary and it was the biggest thing about, about football and that was what everyone got really excited about every four years. Panini stickers. Panini stickers and Alamau and Dunga and other footballers who played at World Cups, etc. And Cameroon against Argentina in 1990. These were the moments that defined our memories of football. That's not true anymore. I'm not saying it's good or that I like it or that I think that everything about modern football is great, but the fact is that three, four times a year, the best players in the world play against each other every year in the latter stages of the Champions League. That is the apex of world football. This idea that you have to dominate a World Cup to kind of be considered, along with Pele and Maradona, as the very, very best, above even George Best, is nonsense. It's completely outdated. Messi is one of the best players in the world and in history because he has done it time and time again against all of his peers every year, more than Pele or Maradona ever did. But there is a saturation point. The Champions League clubs cannot absorb every great player in the world. So the World Cup gives us all a chance to see the South American players and the African players who, for whatever, maybe they just don't want to come to Europe. But, you know... Well, there's not many, to be fair. There's a few, but there's not many. But we're contradicting ourselves. We've already said there are players who do a job in a team who aren't yeah, no, but we're, we're, we're now but talking individually. I'm, I'm not saying that I don't like the World Cup. I love the World Cup. I think it's great for seeing players that you like you say that you don't normally see, teams that you don't normally get to see. It tends to start fashions the World Cup. That's where people see the kind of cross pollination of tactics and what have what have you. You get Premier League managers. Roberto Martinez went to South Africa in 2010 just to watch Chile. Does he love the way they play? So he went to watch Chile to see how he could adopt their practices into his game. But in terms of on an individual level, does the World Cup define greatness in the modern era? No. Ollie? Just talk, talk about English football. I mean, we, we have our views of, of English players tarnished by the fact that they haven't won the World Cup or even come closer. I mean, this Beckham, Lampard, Gerrard, Stoles, Terry Ferdinand, Cole generation. Personally, I think it's the best generation of English footballers for a long, long time. But they are tarnished in, in people's minds because they haven't done great at World Cups or haven't even played well at World Cups. Now, if you look at World Cups, the best players who are playing at a top level in the Champions League, etc., in long seasons, are generally shattered by the time they turn up. I mean, look at Messi and Ronaldo in 2010. They were both poor and they were both playing in systems which were inferior to what they play in at club level. And the fact is that these are, well, certainly Messi and Ronaldo, these are the two best players in the world. And if they, if they have a, a stinker at the World Cup, it, it, it won't affect that. That will probably be because they've played so well at, um, you know, for the previous four years and struggle to adjust to the demands of a tournament in June after four weeks off. Well, to be fair to Messi, he's got a couple of months to relax now, doesn't he? I know he's got an injury, yeah. but he's, th- that would be hugely significant, the fact that Messi gets a break mid-season. Because Ollie's absolutely right that even Spain, when obviously in the last mm. three tournaments, by the end of certainly the World Cup and Euro 2012 they looked knackered I know that they produced that wonderful performance against the Italians after the Italians would reduce the 10 men in the final of Euro 2012 but they, were, they weren't they were playing with that same sort of vim and vigour that Barcelona do and it's the same it's a very similar style tiredness is the main factor in World Cups that's why England are always terrible at the World Cups everyone's knackered and injured from the ridiculous hurly-burly of the Premier League that is a huge factor the fact that Messi gets to sit, sit with his feet up and do a bit of like little light exercise for two months is probably in the long term quite good for it Right, so before we uh, turn the World Cup into a Champions League sideshow in which everybody's a bit too knackered and they don't really care, which countries are we most excited at seeing and think might cause a bit of a stir or surprise us, Stuart? Well, I've 
followed Brazil for the last year and a half. I've seen all their games. That's Scal- a wild card, Stuart. Well, in terms of, <laughs> am I excited to see? I'm, I'm not sure how Scolari is going to... I know what team he thinks. He's got his best 11 already penciled in. But I've seen them play two different ways. And I'm not sure he knows which way he wants to play. They won the final in the Confederations Cup against Spain by playing a high intensity, closing the ball down, playing almost just within the rules. And they'll be able to get away with that because in front of the Brazilian crowds, they're going to influence referees. And no question, referees are influenced by crowds. But I've also seen them play at too slow a tempo and look a very average side. So I'm interested to see how they're going to play. And having seen Chile the other night, I'm looking forward to watching them again in the World Cup because they're like Mexico of 2006, who I followed, and nobody could actually work out what their tactics were, what their team shape was. And I don't think anybody could really say, because I was doing the game and I I said that uh, Chile had played with a back three throughout their World Cup qualifications. And people argue, no, they actually played with a back four. When I watched the game the other night, they played with a back four, but it very rarely stayed as a back four. And their wide players all interchanged positions. So I'm really looking forward to watching Chile play. And they could teach England a thing or two about how to adapt, how to be more inventive, how to be more imaginative when you come to your your team systems the way you want the game played. Rory, who who do you fancy a look at? Colombia are genuine dark horses at the risk of kind of inciting the dose of 1994 and getting one of their defenders shot. They beat Belgium 2-0 in the, in the battle of the dark horses, the dark horse derby on Friday night. I think they'll both be good to watch. I wouldn't fancy playing either of them. But Colombia, particularly, the, just the wealth of attacking options is incredible. And if they get a kind draw in the group in the last 16, I think they, they, could, probably, they could make the semis. Are, are there any European teams going to sh- have the ability to shine in Brazil, Oli? Uh, well, you, you would you would imagine Germany and Spain would certainly be in the uh, in the later stages, and then you look at the amount of creative talent that those two teams have. Uh, it's terrifying. They've got players who won't get into their 23 who would absolutely walk into the England team and, and would walk into most teams in the world. So, I mean, Germany and Spain, I, I would think, would be the, the strongest. Belgium will be interesting, aren't they? Because they've got all these very good players who are playing at a very high level in leagues around Europe. They would seem to have a much stronger team and much stronger score than England do. But I share um, Rory's feeling that you know when we talk about these dark horse teams who've got these exotic um, individuals, sometimes the expectation on them is so huge, and, and Colombia is one of the ones that comes to mind. The expectation is sometimes so great that they underperform because they're not used to dealing with the um, pressure of, uh, of having to do something. It's not supposed it's to be any pressure at all. Well, yeah, but it's the type of pressure that England have never had to deal with because England have always had this sort of... Um, ridiculous over-expectation or ridiculous under-expectation. I think there is a pressure. We look at, it at the countries that we consider dark horses and think, oh, they're playing with that pressure, that's probably really good. But within those countries, there is a mm. huge amount of pressure. That they're not dark horses. So I, I was in Colombia in the summer, and that's a unique example, I think, because they are so conscious of what happened in 1994, where they basically assumed they would win the World Cup. And you had the drug cartels who were really close to the teams, and the Colombian FA totally kind of took their eye off the ball, and it, it all kind of went absolutely pear-shaped in quite a horrible way. The Colombians are really conscious of not allowing that to happen again. But you speak to people in football and outside of football and fans, and they know full well they've got Falcao, they've got James Rodriguez, they've got all, they've got Jackson Martinez, who's their substitute striker, who can't stop scoring for Porto. They know that they have some really good players. It'll be the same in Belgium. You speak to Belgians, they know how good the side is. They think Mark Wilmots is a terrible manager, but they know how good that team is. It depends what you mean by a dark horse, doesn't it? Because the team that everyone always pitches their dark horses are Holland, as though pitching Holland is some sort of really left field suggestion. <laughs> They've been in every finals or whatever since 1974. They always go in with a chance. Their dark horses to win it 
I think teams like Belgium and Colombia are dark horses to get quite far. I don't think either of them will, will win the tournament. And then if you look at like proper dark horses, you've got someone like Japan or Nigeria, who are both good sides, who, depending on the draw, could get further than people would expect, like South Korea in 2002. So there's different kind of gradations of dark horses, and I think that's important. Stuart, I mean, I've already mentioned Nigeria. African nations, are they? is this going to be the time uh well i just i've just seen a lot of the african qualifiers uh did cameroon over the last two games against tunisia i don't think they're going to be good enough again they play with quite a good system alex song is the holding player they play with uh, two center halves who drop deep and switch play around the back and they make an overload in midfield and they look threatening when they're going they haven't got a center forward webbo's playing up front for them he's not good enough and when the two center halves are being attacked they don't read danger so I can see Cameroon doing okay but they're not going to be a top side Ivory Coast have struggled at the last couple of African Cup of Nations uh, they've still got some of the same old players Kalu's still playing Drogba's still playing one or two others so I don't think they're going to be good enough Nigeria having seen them at the Confederations Cup having seen them at the African Cup of Nations they have got some good things going for them but the one player that lights up their team is John Obi Mikel he's still their main player and we always talk about him in, in, in disparaging manner in, in England but well, for no, just, Nigeria just on this he's, podcast, actually, he's, he's been brilliant <laughs> He's been brilliant for Nigeria. OK, let's wrap it up with predictions. I think we're all going to say Brazil going to win it. OK, I'll say Brazil are going to win it. Rory? Argentina. I'm going to go for Argentina as well. Ollie? Uh, I'll say Spain. Ooh. This has been a proper like, left-field <laughs> podcast, hasn't it? Yeah. Stuart's up in Brazil as his dark horses. <laughs> Ollie reckons Spain might win it. Switzerland. Switzerland are the team, actually. Yeah, they got some of the players. And Roy taught them all they know. Exactly. Time for the quick hits. Staying with the international theme, the reappointment of Chris Coleman to manage Wales. Stuart, sensible or lazy? Uh, I think it's a little bit lazy. Chris Coleman needs to be on the training field. Wales have some good young players. They had a good under-21 team two or three years ago, run by Brian Flynn, where the players were developed. I'm not sure Chris Coleman is a coach who's going to develop the players. And so in that view, I think it's a lazy decision and they need a top-class coach to go in and get the best out of those young players. Andy Reid says O'Neill and Keane are a good double act for Ireland. So, Ollie, have we been too cynical about their ability to work harmoniously together? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't every player say that about every new manager or set up in the first weeks and months while the honeymoon period is going on? I mean, it's, it's not really a surprise to hear um, Andy Reid or any Ireland player be positive about it. But personally, I think it will work well for Ireland, so at least for the next two years or so. I think they've got a decent chance of getting to uh, Euro 2016. But as a long-term arrangement, I would think it's probably a slightly flawed relationship, flawed marriage, and uh, perhaps it won't uh, last uh, in quality. What, six months, a year? Two years? What? Two and a half years. Two and a half. Two and a half. Thank you. Thank you, Ollie. On to domestic can, matters. Can I just say, I've been trying to get an interview with Maurizio Pochettino for nine months, and Southampton have now come back to me and said yes. I'm very happy. Very good. Right, go on, hit me. Rory, no one wants to manage Crystal Palace, it seems. I do it. Uh, Steve Parrish says the new manager could be named today. We're talking Monday here. And Holloway, he left on the 23rd of October. What is happening? Uh, well, I will, I will confess that I've been on holiday for a week, so I haven't been keeping as abridged with, with the details of Crystal Palace. Nothing's changed. Managerial search as I should have been. I think it will be Tony Pulis, but I think what's absolutely telling about what's happened at Palace and the scale of the task there is that Ian Dowie's been linked with it. Now, surely when Palace sacked Ian Holloway, they weren't thinking... Do you know who, who will definitely keep us up when Ian Holloway can't? It's, it's definitely Ian Dowie. He is the man we need. He is exactly the person we need in this, in this situation. I think they were right to get rid of Holloway, but it shows that 
the naivety of the club and the kind of the fact that they are a little bit out of their depth on all levels, not just in terms of the players or, or the staff, but also kind of the hierarchy, that they didn't have a single candidate lined up. They've spoken to a few people and they all seem to have kind of said, mm, this is kind of an impossible job to keep. Impossible, to keep so I'll up. go to Middlesbrough instead. Well, that's, that's the it. sort of when, thing that's happened. Well, when, when I talk to Ranka is going to Middlesbrough, then there's something wrong with the world. When he's going to Middlesbrough ahead of a Premier League club, there's something really long, wrong with the world. And it just shows how, how tough it is for Palace to stay up, I think. It looks increasingly likely that Wilfred Sahar will go on loan in January. He was a Sir Alex signing, mind you. Good idea for him to go elsewhere, Stuart? Absolutely. I've seen him play in the Community Shield for Manchester United. I saw him play in pre-season friendlies. I think he came on as a sub in the very first game against Swansea. He looked out of his depth at Manchester United. He made the wrong decisions. He looked like a, a player that wanted to throw his leg over the ball and do tricks, but all at the wrong time. And you could tell that the other players were exasperated by him. Ryan Giggs, who's one of the coaches, they kept on throwing his arms up in disgust every time he gave the ball away. So he's not going to get on at Manchester United. He's not a David Moyes sort of player. He's not going to be somebody that's going to do a good job for the team. He has to go somewhere else in January to pick up his career again. Newcastle a decent place for him to go? No, I think Newcastle have got better players than Zaha. Paolo Di Canio claims he will be asked to manage again in England. Who, Ollie, would dare to invite him? That is a good question. I don't know, Grimsby? No, I'm, I'm, I mean, Di Canio is, is, is such a strange case. I mean, he, he basically got that job at Sunderland on the basis of his, not, not so much his achievements, but the fact that he achieved something at Swindon while being a personality and, and a big name. I, I would say that now, his big name and the tainted association with, with Sunderland is probably going to put people off. Now, I can't see anyone rushing to give them a job unless they're the type of um, chairman or chief executive that think, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, we might get our names in the papers and you know, it'll be fun for a while. And frankly, there are a few of those um, clubs around, but I, I, I don't think any serious club would rush to uh, hire them in, uh, anytime soon. Sorry, Paolo. Rennie Mullenstein is Fulham's new head coach. What happens, Rory, if Martin Yoll's side lose at home against Swansea on Saturday? Uh, Rene Mullenstein immediately does an Ask Rene uh, thing on Twitter where people get to ask him questions about how great he is. Uh, <laughs> it, I'm quite interested in this. Just Mule- I'm fascinated by Mullenstein because he's got this incredible reputation from United, but it's almost it's very difficult, I think, to assess how good a coach he is purely from his time at Manchester United. Does People speak very highly of him, but then you have to consider the, the, kind of the atmosphere he was working in and the players he was working with. That must be kind of a factor in terms of how well he did. He is meant to be an excellent coach. Uh, I'm sure he will make Fulham better. But the problem that Yol's got now is that he's got someone who clearly wants to be a manager. Moonstein's made no secret of that whatsoever. Working with him, that very rarely ends happily. Fulham and Yol have looked like an unhappy marriage for quite a long time. So that is just a matter of time. And they seem basically now to have appointed the man who will probably be Yol's replacement. Yeah, it's, it's a very strange situation for Martin Yol to be in. It's probably not desperately comfortable. But then the thing with Martin Yol is you can never really tell if he cares about anything. <laughs> so 8pm Saturday if Fulham lose, he yeah, becomes I think, manager. Yeah, I, I think Moonstein is now in, in place. He'd be gutted if Yol got sacked and they then appointed somebody else. That would be... Well, hilarious. Um, Alison, I've got a question for you. I'm very curious to know, which manager in the top six of the Barclays Premier League do you think has had the happiest international break? It has to be Pochettino. He's living the fairy tale. His club are living the fairy tale. They were candidates to go into administration, to be no more, and now they're in the top four, and they don't look like they're going to drift too far out of it. They're doing everything right. They are defensively sound, they're young, they're quick, they don't look like they're treading water as in they're pushing it too hard at the start of the season and they'll fade away they look like they've got it in it for the long haul 
no one's saying anything other than nice things about Southampton. Roy Hodgson has been totally seduced by them and calling in every player he possibly could. And Pochettino has just found out he's going to be interviewed by Rory Smith of the Times any minute now. You better talk about it in case it doesn't happen. No, that's fine. It's a fact now. Yeah. So yep. no one's going to call in 10 months' time and say, hang on, I was waiting for that Rory Smith interview. It never happened. They might do. A lot of people follow my work very closely. <sighs> no, Roy, it's fine. It's fine. It's time to say goodbye. Next week, we'll be chatting about the weekend's Premier League action, which includes the Merseyside derby and Manchester City versus Spurs. And don't forget, you can see all the goals and the rest of the highlights from every Premier League game before anyone else, simply by downloading the Times app to your smartphone. I'd like to thank Oliver Kay, Rory Smith and Stuart Robson for their contributions and to all of you for listening. Until next time. Your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 